This is Winning Slowly, taking the long view on technology, religion, ethics, and art. I'm Chris Carcio. And I'm Stephen Caradini. And today we're going to talk about gene editing, particularly the type of gene editing that is now possible thanks to innovations in uh, biology research, particularly the CRISPR method of gene editing. And we'll talk a little bit more about this in the body of the episode, but we'll also link an article that explains it in more detail, what it actually does. Indeed. But at a high level, it's basically like copy-pasting for genes. There's more to it than that, but that's essentially what they're doing, is taking bits of other genes and replacing them with uh, whatever you want to replace <laughs> them with. Before we jump all the way into that, I want to make a quick note about some listener feedback we got last time, which was very good feedback. And listener Ben noted that disambiguating a bit of what people mean when they talk about moving fast and breaking things is helpful. We talked a lot about moving fast and breaking things in a sort of broad cultural sense, but worth note, uh, as Ben pointed out, that for some people, that only means approach business problems as science experiments, and if the hypothesis fails, adjust and try something new. For others, it becomes largely an excuse not to plan ahead even when it's possible or not to consider the ramifications of your decisions, which was mostly what we were getting at. <laughs> yeah, And yeah, that still one. other people use that at the level of code programming, saying that you should prefer right down to the level of the programming language you use, which allow you to prioritize the speed with which you developed over the correctness of what you develop. And that's a really important distinction. We were talking pretty much entirely about two. I don't even agree with three, but one is actually pretty interesting there. Business problems as experiments, discard them if things don't work. Yeah, okay. And so it is worth just saying, one, thanks, Ben. That was a helpful clarification. And two, we meant the second one. <laughs> yeah, we definitely did. Although I think all three of them are worthwhile to mm -hmm. discuss in terms of what we were actually talking about. Uh, although only Chris would be qualified in this conversation <laughs> to actually talk about three, I definitely uh, think that these are all three uh, strong entries in what it means and disambiguating is important. So thanks, Ben. Now, back to gene editing. Speaking of science experiments, uh, gene editing. So, as I mentioned, it is a process by which uh, scientists slash doctors slash researchers can edit genes. They can fix things that are broken. They can change elements if they want to change elements. There are obviously limitations to the technology. This is still a fairly new technology, even though it is new enough that it has already gone through a grueling court case to determine who actually owns the patents on this software. But... Since it's fairly new, there's a lot of things that science in general doesn't know, and there's an even greater number of things that Chris and I just don't know <laughs> about this thing. Truly. So at a technical level, we are not experts at the technical side of what gene editing means. However, the ramifications of gene editing that have been popularized and that are extrapolatable from those popularizations are fairly within our wheelhouse. They're things that people can understand and debate, and that is what we are going to do here on Money Slowly, is uh, debate what is potentially good, what is potentially bad, and what is obviously super bad. 
fair warning to Stevens and my wives. We're probably going to argue less this week because we talked ahead of time and we mostly agree about most of the things in this episode. So unlike last time, you're not going to get two sprawling arguments, but it's still going to be fun. true. Yeah. I mean, we'll find something to disagree about, I'm sure. But <laughs> we always do. The broad outline of what we're talking about, Chris and I largely agree on. So, to kick right into it, the main thing that we're interested in when it comes to gene editing is, despite all of its potential ramifications for crops and for uh, animal life and for these sorts of things, we're mostly interested in this episode for how it works on humans. Right. And it's not because those other things are unimportant. In fact, we're going to talk about farms and rural life and things like that later this season, which might seem strange to you, but it'll make sense when we get there. Yeah. But those things, as much as they matter, I think matter fairly obviously less than whether it's okay to rewrite someone's genes say because you wanted a blonde kid rather than a brunette kid on the most trivial but real possible Possible. end of the spectrum all the way over to hey i'm an adult and i've got early onset alzheimer's and maybe we can fix this genetically should i should i be able to do it should i do it and a whole host of things in between those human questions much as whether you should have a genetically edited dog is an important question in in a lot of ways, those human questions are more important and bigger and in many ways more pressing. Yeah. So what I did to start our conversation when we were playing this episode was I pointed out three kind of categories, things that were uh, gener- that were okay almost all of the time, in my opinion, things that were potentially okay in some circumstances, and things that were not okay and to see where Chris would fall down on some of those issues. And so I said, always okay is things like correcting fatal birth defects, quote, birth defects, in utero so that a baby doesn't die in utero in birth or before leaving the hospital after birth. And I also said that always okay is removing cancer genes, again, quote, unquote, at any time. So if you know that you have a marker for cancer, I think it's probably fine to, in the name of medicine, remove that before it becomes cancer. Now, I know that cancer is like a big name for a lot of different things, but at a macro level, I'm cool with removing cancer before it becomes cancer. The potentially okay in some circumstances is correcting Down syndrome in utero and altering things like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's with the patient's express approval in adults. And not okay as Chris mentioned, was choosing physical characteristics of a baby, i.e. altering things that don't need to be altered. So choosing to alter certain things instead of having a medical prerogative and creating super soldiers. Sorry, Captain America. But I like the captain. I, I, the, the cap is great, but sh- should we all be so moral <laughs> as at least the first Captain America of the Avengers series? Yeah. To jump off of that, I could answer all of those three things, but there is an important question to raise maybe first and to have in the back of our heads as we talk through what it would look like if we say yes to this question. And the question is, should we do this at all? And the reason that that is a question we ought to ask is because we should never, 
with any technology, assume that the answer to that question is yes, automatically, inherently. That's true. The answer may be yes. And sometimes it's reasoning through the scenarios as we're going to do with a sort of hypothetical yes here, for, at least for me. I haven't actually resolved that question personally. I, I think the answer might, in fact, be no for some, of, and, and if not no in general, then no in many cases. But I think that even if we grant a possible hypothetical yes, it, it can be useful for the sake of reasoning about it and for the sake of thinking about some of the consequences, some of the ways it trains us to think about our bodies, ourselves, our culture, children, old people, etc. And the way is it trains us to think about death, the way it trains us to think about suffering, the way it trains us to think about people who aren't like us. And so for all of those reasons, I think it's not a given that the answer is yes. I do think that reasoning through some of these scenarios may help us reckon with whether the answer should be yes, or very occasionally in these very few circumstances, yes, or no. Uh, and And so that's a my background here is I don't I don't have a clear answer there yet, but I think those are the kinds of things we should ask, as well as if we say yes, where do we land? So I'm more bullish on this than Chris, as you can hear. Shockingly enough. <laughs> and part of the reason that I'm interested in this as a concept and as a potential thing is because I'm kind of okay with treating cancer. And in my mind, this is an extension of ways that we can treat cancer or ways that we can potentially correct uh, fatal syndromes in utero. Right. So I see this as an extension of medicine. Now, that's only one way to think about it. So Chris's way of thinking about it, placing it into a larger context is totally valid. And we're going to talk about that as we go yeah. forward. But my background, instead of saying, should we do this as an objective concept I see this more as an extension of medicine, and therefore, as an extension of medicine, I say, you know, there are some things that medicine should and shouldn't do, but in general, medicine is a good thing. Right. And I, Whereas once we move out of the realm of medicine, then I'm starting to be like, hey, yo, so maybe no, we should not do You'll that. hear echoes here of our discussion on bodily modification, and not for no reason, <laughs> because ultimately, this is the most extreme kind of bodily modification. We're, right. we're rewriting things. And one of the other reasons I'm hesitant, especially for today, is that the last seven to 10 years have seen some pretty radical shifts in our understanding of how genes work and how genetic expression works and how complicated it is. Oh, yeah. I think if nothing else, we should slow way down on this. Well, oh, uh, wait, wait, Because wait, wait. we're just getting some what of those. What does slow way down but, mean? Hold on. I haven't gotten to my uh, to even my tracing out the okay, not okay, All et cetera, right, in my it. hypotheticals here. Go for it. <laughs> Mine don't look a lot different from Stevens. I do think that in general, if we if we say yes to that big macro question, we we should. I don't think you have to though. What? I don't think you have to say yes to a big macro question. No. I think that it's all instantiated, right? It's all individual I don't. experiences. I, and, and that's where I think – so we found our disagreement, listeners. <laughs> wow. That one came a lot earlier and was a lot more serious than we expected. 
if we say yes to the macro question, and we'll circle back to it, I think. <laughs> Seems likely. Then there are things that look like they should be always okay in those medical contexts. And I think situating it that way is helpful. I think noting the history of medical practice and what constitutes allowable and non-allowable medical practice is part of what gets at the, is this okay in a broad sense question. I think that's true. The correcting fatal things that are obviously fatal in a baby before it's born or as it's going to be born or immediately after birth, et cetera. In the context of reasoning about this as a kind of medical treatment, those things seem like places that we would want to say yes. The potentially okay things Stephen lists, adults saying, I don't want to get Alzheimer's. I, I mean, yeah, I don't want to get Alzheimer's. And if there were a way to eliminate Parkinson's that did not pose real serious risks to the people getting the treatment, if there were a way for my dad to have been able to undergo treatment for a brain tumor that he was diagnosed for last fall that didn't involve invasive surgery and radiation and chemotherapy and were safer than those and higher yield than those. Yeah. I mean, those things seem like obvious wins, obvious things to turn down, altering hair color or eye color or intelligence or things like that in a baby. Super soldiers, I agree. Much as I like Captain America, I agree. We probably shouldn't go creating super soldiers. You've got all that Red Skull nonsense going. Not a good plan. I know. It cuts, it cuts off a significant arm of science fiction literature, True. but there you go. But I think where the really difficult cases go, if you answer that big macro question as a yes, are, okay, I said we shouldn't alter intelligence. But some of those things get real sticky. And I, I say this with a lot of consideration and care because of people I know personally uh, and people in a lot of my friends and extended families' lives. Things like Down syndrome or autism, these often have intelligence level effects. Correcting them, quote unquote, that's, that's even language that becomes difficult in some of these cases. Down syndrome is a kind of thing that we can see as a, an abnormality. It is a genetic configuration that is not normal. It's, it is an atypical, a neuroatypical condition. Right. And autism even more so. Down syndrome, there's a very clear, there's one, one thing very specifically wrong genetically. Something like autism is not that way. These lines get very, very fuzzy in terms of understanding what it would mean to look at uh, an infant in the womb and say, this kid has Down syndrome. We can fix that. That's in some ways very tempting. Certainly, I think it would be a better outcome than aborting 90% of Down syndrome children, which is the rough status today in the Western world. But... Correcting autism. If you talk to an autistic person as an adult with their own volition and agency, they might tell you that they don't wish to have been rewritten in the womb even were it, were, were it possible. Uh, it's, it's very difficult 
in our current context to say this thing is obviously inherently totally bad. And there's also a spectrum of abilities and intelligences and relational abilities that go on with both Down syndrome and and autism spectrum disorders. And lots of others. Cerebral palsy comes to mind as well. There are cases where these can be completely debilitating. Right. And there are also cases where the people who have these conditions are high-functioning, they're part of society, they have jobs, they're independent. So there's no clear line, which is the case with ethics a lot of the time. Right. And so thinking about when is it okay and what levels of autonomy do we have in those decisions? So if someone says to you, okay, you have autism, you're relatively high-functioning, you have a job, you live alone, you do your own life, do you want to have a gene editing surgery where you are not autistic anymore? There's so many different variables that go into what it means to be alive and be a person Mm -hmm. and to be an independent human being that one, Chris and I could not even attempt in any honorable way to guess what that would be like. We have no context for being able to be in that discussion. Secondly, in some cases, it's sort of insulting to even ask that question, right? right? Because they are a person who have their own abilities and their own independence, and they can do what they want. And so if someone comes to you and says, I would like to be not autistic anymore, that's a very different situation than if we as ethicists or society or medicine or whatever goes in and says, hey, I heard you have autism. Do you want to not? That's right. That's a very different sort of set of biases that you're bringing to the table, whereas this person may be doing their own life, being an independent person, having relationships and being flourishing. Right. And you're bringing a set of biases that say, no, you're not. Right. And the reality is if someone tells you, no, I love my life, well, to a large degree, you ought to listen to them. (laughs) To a very, very large degree, you ought to listen to them. And that complicates as well the question of what you should do as a parent. Right. Because as a parent, you have this instinct to protect your children from harms, from troubles as best you can. And that's a good and right instinct. That's what parents should do. So if you get the news that your child has trisomy 21, and this is going to have severe lasting consequences for their entire lives. And your entire life. That's right. As a parent. What is the ethical response? What is the thing to do? Now, as I said, I think it would be clearly better to say, let's fix that genetic abnormality, that thing that I think it is fair to say in that case, despite the ways that people with that condition can be very happy. It's a brokenness. But it's not a simple or a trivial brokenness. And it's one that I think we should feel very hesitant 
about and we should feel very cautious about that even if we say yes there right th- there shouldn't be a cavalier well yeah obviously about it there yeah. should be a recognition that there's something important and something not to be understated in its importance about making these kinds of changes which are incredibly radical in the spectrum of mm-hmm. kinds of medical changes we make and that's yes. where my broader ambiguity about whether we should say yes to this in any cases comes from because it is a very very significant thing to do and yeah if i had to land somewhere today i would say yes but under extremely restrained circumstances i think i i agree with you but i also think that bombarding someone with with radiation is an extreme thing that we do and we do that all the time that's just how we have to right at this particular point in time, deal with cancer along with chemotherapy and other experimental types of things. So at the level at which we're already dealing with extreme, potentially deadly if done inaccurately or potentially deadly even if it doesn't work types of interventions, I've already made my peace with like, hey, if I get cancer, I'm going to go get irradiated in the hopes that I will get better. Like, So there's a level at which the larger meta question of how do we think about potentially radical changes to the body in ways that people 2000 years ago could not have even imagined. I mean, cancer therapy is one of them, like any of them. And so that's where I see this as an extension of medicine. And I can firmly agree. There are plenty of times when medicine and medicine research has gone horribly wrong, been totally unethical, preyed on, people who could not have their own decisions in the process. There's lots of these. So I'm not saying that gung-ho, all yes, all the time. There need to be barriers. There need to be ethical walls about consent. And to a large degree, uh, and to the chagrin of people who want to do quick or easy medical research, there are a ton of these already. Which is good and right, yeah. Which is good and right. Which means that if, and that is a big if, if... This is treated as medical research, and it's within the bounds that we've already established over a long period of time to protect against these abuses. I'm fairly okay with it because we've already passed a threshold where I'm doing something completely unnatural in the attempts to stay alive, which is sort of natural. And I think I – like I said, I think I'd probably land there with you in the scenarios like cancer treatment. Right. The ones where I think it becomes really difficult are on things that, for example, alter personality. And Yeah, and- no, it's it's tough. And I don't know if I have a defined answer for every single case right. for thinking about Down syndrome or other personality altering disorders and syndromes because everything is is variable. There's so much variation there. And I think that Part of the challenge here is that in utero, you have no idea whether right. it, it's severe. You have no idea whether – now, we may some at some time in the future, science writ large may know already, and I just don't uh, because I'm not, like I said at the beginning of the episode, super up <laughs> on the latest on this particular line of research. But you know, I know that as in the, the 80s and even into the 90s, sometimes people were told this baby has – Trisomy 21, and they were wrong. I know that from from experience. And so there's 
it's that's why I said it's potentially okay. That's why I threw it in the middle yeah. category is that uh, there's a lot more variables than you can bring to bear to say, yes, this is always okay, right. and no, this is not not okay. Where super soldiers, pretty easy to say not okay, right? Like Because we don't want the red skull. Yeah, because, of course, no one wants the red <laughs> skull. Um, but there's a limited number of variables that are perceived as meaningful, in my mind, to bear on that issue, right? There's a limited number of things. Do we like war? Yes, no. Is there a meaningful reason to do this outside of war yes no is there you know the variables become more discrete now obviously if we got further down the line with trying that which i hope we don't there would become more variables right like if somebody was like well we're already in a giant war of survival then then you have more variables and that's bad but right now when we can actually say here are some of the most important variables let's look at them and answer no, I think that's important to do that right. now. To use an analogy that Stephen and I were laughing about a little bit before we started the show, one of the reasons it's important to have these conversations now, and especially to start thinking about them in, in terms of the regulatory side of things now, is because, well, it's a lot harder to put a cat back in a bag after you've let the cat out of the bag. We were thinking it's about... True some of the historical examples of going after things that were ultimately recognized to be very, very bad slavery in the West being one of them and slavery anywhere being right. bad. I'm, let it be yes. said. Uh, I was thinking very specifically about the kind of chattel slavery practiced in England and the Americas and what it took to end that. Yes. And it took decades and decades and decades of work, and we're still living with the consequences of it and the ways that it has had ruinous consequences on generations and generations of lives. Right. Can we put that cat back in the bag? Kind of, but not easily. And the effects still go on, right. regardless of whether we get the cat back in or right. not. Like, even if we stop chattel slavery, and in a lot of situations that happened— there are still situations that it does exist, and then even in places where it doesn't exist, the effects are right. huge right. in longstanding in societal and cultural and legal and practical terms. And so to, to use a phrase that gets used in some of the literature on this, it's really important when we're evaluating technologies and when we're thinking about how we address things not just individually, but communally and societally, where questions of government policy come into play, to get to these questions before technological momentum sets in. There's a phase in these kinds of things where societies have the ability to make decisions about them. And then there's a point where the technology has become so embedded that making decisions become if not impossible, then very nearly so. And an example of this is the scale of work that would be required to undo the automobile dependency of American cities. There was a point a century ago where there were, there were choices to be made here, but we've built the entire infrastructure of the United States and the structure of most major cities in the United States around that. Can it be undone? In principle, yes, but the cost will be enormous. The other example is Facebook. Mm -hmm. There was a time five, 
eight years ago, maybe when the social network, the movie, came out, <laughs> that we could have had discussions about this and said, hmm, what do we want to do with this? Because it was clearly a big enough thing in 2010 that there was a giant budget movie made of it. Right. So there were there was an opening there before and even slightly afterwards where we could have made decisions and said, hey, maybe this isn't what we want. Or, okay, let's allow these people to do these things in these ways. This is what we want. But now, eight years later on from the, the social network, we're in a place where it's going to be very difficult – to put some of that cat back in the bag. Right. And no one has the stomach for turning off Facebook, which would be putting the cat all the way back in the bag. Uh, That's just not something that we really have the ability to do right now, partially because of how Facebook is entwined with the economy and with people's individual lives and with communities' lives and with all these different parts of existence and another is that it just has giant scale now and as we mentioned in our last episode there's almost nothing that can reach that level of scale to fight scale with scale right it would have been better if we could have fought it when it was just an american thing or when it was just a college thing right and so along those lines we need to figure out what we should say about gene editing really fast because it's coming really fast. We need to be having serious conversations with our friends and our families about the ethics of this and with our elected representatives about the ethics of this and with scientists in our communities, whether that's people you know through church or people you know through your hockey team that you play on every week or whatever it may be. What's up, Beer League Hockey? We love you. (laughs) Talking about the ethics of these questions and where we should draw the lines. Because as should be clear from this episode, Stephen and I don't think this is a carte blanche issue. There should be lines drawn. We need to figure out really soon where those lines are and start drawing them so that this cat doesn't get out of the bag in ways that will be really bad. Right. And there are people who are thinking about this. There have been white papers. There have been guidances But those are only as good as when people choose to do them. And so Chris and I both agree on this front that there should be some regulation, even if regulation can be a fairly blunt hammer sometimes. There should be some regulation that is involved in the process of determining what the bounds of this are. It shouldn't be all of it. Definitely should not be all of it. But in cases like last season where we said, sometimes you don't need regulation. You just need this and this and this. In this This case, we kind of see... Yeah, we kind of see that there's going to need to be some regulation. And furthermore, once regulation goes on, whatever it is, hopefully, there will be some people that are disappointed with whatever that regulation is, whether they'll say it goes too far or not far enough. And those people who are on the the losing side of those regulations, whatever they are, are then going to have to go back to their communities and do the hard work of communally figuring out how to live in relation to this regulation, whether it's to completely ignore it or whether to find ways to work within the regulations or to leave that particular area of research slash medicine. These are all possible ways that you can do this. But the development of our thinking on this technology of gene editing is going to be a long, we hope long, and responsive process to the various ways that we hope – And we think that 
regulation and community life and individual ideas are going to be in play. But don't assume it. That's all. But don't assume it. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, we also didn't come down on whether or not you should... uh, I can't... I was going to say heal, but like you can't even use language like heal. It's just so complicated. We didn't say yes or no on that middle phrase. We know. We left it there. We don't have to answer all the questions on this podcast, (laughs) thankfully. Thank goodness. The music at the beginning of the episode was kept by Jason Van Wick. Thanks for letting us use it, Jason. We used it with permission. Please don't use it without permission. Thanks as well to this month's sponsors, including Andrew Fallows and Kurt Klassen. We do appreciate it. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can do so at patreon.com slash winning slowly or give a one-off at cash.me slash dollar sign winning slowly. You can also follow us on Twitter at winning slowly at Chris Kreicho at Scaradini. Email us at hello at winning slowly.org. Basically, if you can flag us down any way that you can, we'd love to, to talk more about this stuff. And uh, we appreciate, again, uh, Ben for reaching out. And uh, if there's any other comments, we will uh, strive to include those in the show as well. So, as always, thanks for listening. This is Winning Slowly, taking the long... Wait, we didn't do any of the show notes or anything. True story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know what the bloopers are going to include. Wait, wait. All right. We keep forgetting to do the thing that we have to do every time. <laughs> we forget it every time. Every time. <laughs> okay. Once more with feeling. Yes. This... Uh, <laughs> Are you starting over on your recording or what? Um, you don't have to. I'm just, you were going dupa dupe and I was trying to figure out what you were dupa duping about.